Hello and welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine hasn't yet a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen like a microcosm of European history. Here you can watch the city grow from the Romans to our present time. What is this episode about? We take a look at Cologne in the year 1000. Our walk can begin again, classically as once in Roman times in the north in the front of the city wall. But unlike in Roman times, we are no longer in the uninhabited countryside where Roman gravestones lined both sides of the street. These have long since disappeared, misused as building material or slumbering deep underground in the earth waiting to be found in the 19th and 20th century by archaeologists. No, a lively suburb has formed here in the meantime, north of the Cologne city wall. We are in a small settlement called Niederich. The first impulses for development had been given here by Bishop Kunibert in the 7th century. The church located here once endowed by Bishop Kunibert in the 7th century still stands at this time in the year 1000. In the beginning it was dedicated to Saint Clement, the saint for fishermen and skippers, but if we were to ask here, now in the year 1000, if this was really the church of Saint Clement, we would only be met with shaking heads. Nope, this is the church of Saint Cunibert, would be the answer. In the meantime, the church itself had been named after its great patron after his canonization. The modest church from the 7th century was still standing here. Archbishop Bruno had only recently bequeathed some money to the church in his will. But in a few decades, the church would be rebuilt. Next to the church are the buildings of the monastery of Cunibert. If it had once served as a base for missionizing the pagan Saxons east and north of Cologne, it now no longer had this purpose. After all, now, here in the year 1000, the Saxons had been Christianized in the meantime, for a long time actually, and what a coincidence, a Saxon dynasty even ruled the entire Christian Holy Roman Empire in the year 1000. The monastery of Cunibert is a rich ecclesiastical institution that owned numerous properties even far away from Cologne. For example, it owned land, fields and farms on the Moselle. Thirty canons lived here, in addition to numerous servants, employees, craftsmen and so on who worked in the surrounding farm buildings. In the immediate vicinity, here in the settlement of Niederich, the canons also ran a hospital for the treatment of the sick. But what else did all the monks and clergy do in their monasteries and convents in and around Cologne? This can be very complicated, but being a part of the clergy could mean so many things and it's such a variety that I will not even try or dare to go into detail right now. We have to do that later in another episode when we talk about clergy in general. But here, let's just simplify things. Clergy and monks, they worked. Since they were often the only ones who could read and write, they spent many hours a day sitting at writing desks in their writing rooms, preparing texts and official documents, copying Bibles and generally composing correspondence for their non-clerical customers who were simply unable to read and write, well, most of them. 
The language of the documents, as everywhere in Europe at that time, was always Latin. Apart from the monks, of course, no other normal person understood it, a circumstance that was also wanted by the church. Thus, they kept the monopoly over this branch, this important branch of economy and knowledge. And thus, of course, they also had a position of power in the society of the city, but also of the entire empire and in whole Europe, which was indispensable. It would probably be a pointless undertaking now to visit every single collegiate church or monastery on our little tour here. Therefore, only briefly, we can say almost the same thing about the monasteries of St. Ursula, St. Gerion, St. Severin and the Benedictine Monastery of St. Pantaleon. In the meantime, small villages had also formed around these originally ecclesiastical institutions, which were located directly adjacent to the north, west and south of the city wall, and thus represented small but economically and strategically important places for Cologne. So important, in fact, that the emerging citizenry of merchants, tradesmen and craftsmen asked themselves whether it would not be better to incorporate places like Niederich and put a trench and a wall around it. An idea that soon found more and more acceptance, but we'll, we will see to what that will lead us. Let's continue towards the city. Here too, as once in Roman times, we enter the city through the North Gate. The North Gate, still from Roman times, had been repeatedly renewed and expanded, especially after the Viking Raid in 881, and still had the same characteristics here in the year 1000. In the center was a large gate for carts. Next to each was an entrance for pedestrians. The double tower gate, however, had received some superstructures as well as generally the 19 watchtowers of the Roman city wall. The Roman city wall, now already 900 years old, protected the people in the city long after the Roman Empire had fallen. Around the year 1000 enclosed the largest city in the Holy Roman Empire and a population as large as London with around 10,000 people. The Cologne district where I live today has well over 10,000 inhabitants and that is only one of a total of 86 districts in the old city on the Rhine today. But 10,000 inhabitants is indeed a large number of people in one place for that time in Europe. This put Cologne, as I said, in the same league as London. Of course, in the international comparison, a joke, in order to remove times only briefly from this nevertheless Eurocentric view of this podcast. By far the largest city in Europe at that time was Constantinople, with over 400,000 inhabitants. Thus, the homeland of Theophanu was, according to today's knowledge, the third largest city in the world. Kaifeng in China and Angkor in Cambodia, each with a million inhabitants, were at the top, plus many cities in that part of the world that had over 100,000 people in their midst. But in Europe, more than 90% of the people lived in rural villages with only a few dozen inhabitants, and even the mighty and big city of Rome, once having 1 million inhabitants, was only having a few thousand inhabitants in that time. So much for that, but now let's finally get inside of Cologne. I learned from previous strolls that we should not always spend so much time outside and talking about gravestones. Even before we step through the North Gate, 
The old Cologne Cathedral towers far above the 8-meter-high city wall. Like today's cathedral, this 9th-century cathedral would still be breathtaking from today's perspective. Under Bruno and his successors, we are not quite sure who did what, the building had been extended further and further. Here in the year 1000, on a west-east axis, completely dominating the northeastern part of the city area, stands a 100-meter-long five-nave cathedral building with double choir, two ring gallery crypts and a double transept. This all sounds like bohemian villages to you, as we say as a metaphor in German. Well, then check out the comparison post of this episode, where I post pictures of how the old Cologne Cathedral looked like at thehistoryofcologne.com. As we pass through the north gate, the entrance to the spacious western atrium of the old cathedral borders directly on the street we are walking on right now. To the east of the cathedral, where the building of the baptistry once stood, there was now a cemetery for the cathedral canons. This, by the way, still exists today. Completely inconspicuous, directly adjacent to the choir of today's Cologne Cathedral. To the east of the cathedral, another church would soon be built, St. Maria at Grados, so St. Mary to the Steps, but we'll get to that another time. But not only the church itself is located here, I mean the cathedral. Also directly adjacent to the cathedral is the cathedral monastery. With monastery school and palace of the archbishop or for the emperor when he comes to visit. This complex was one of the largest of its kind in Europe. For another 250 years or so, the old cathedral would dominate the city on this site. Then in 1248, construction would begin here on what is now the Gothic Cologne Cathedral, which, including a 300-year break, would take over 600 years to build. The Cologne Monastery School in particular is renowned in the Empire and throughout Christian Europe. Clergymen are trained here, many of whom will later hold high clerical offices themselves in the Empire and or at the Emperor's court. Let's just briefly enter the old cathedral. Like any cathedral or basilica, we are still moved by the architectural masterpieces of these buildings. But now think what it must have been for the people back then who only knew one or two or three-story half-timbered houses. Here in the old cathedral it is much darker than in today's gothic cathedral with its numerous windows. In contrast, this Romanesque architectural style relied on massive walls to be able to build up high. Only a few narrow windows in the nave near below the ceiling let in some daylight. Here, inside, in the middle of the cathedral, we find the Gero Cross, which I already mentioned in the last episode. It stands right in the middle of the old cathedral, on top of the grave of Gero. But what is the Gero Cross anyway? Well, the people of Cologne are known for their self-indulgence, but here it is appropriate. The Gero Cross is the oldest representation of the dead Jesus Christ on the cross. But wait a minute, you will say, all crucifixes nowadays show the dead Messiah on the cross, don't they? Correct, precisely because this Gero Cross was worked so artistically and significantly 
that all crucifixes in Western Europe were based on it. Previously, Jesus had always been depicted on the cross in an upright pose, divine as the victor over death, quasi as if he would not care that he was just tortured to death in the most evil way. This was the iconography until around the year 1000. The Gero cross, however, represents Jesus at the moment of his death. His body hangs limp on the cross and sags down. The belly is already hollowed out as usual for deceased and the eyes of the Messiah are closed. He was depicted that very moment when the Son of God breathed his last and died. This had not been done before in Western Europe. Since then, new crucifixes have always been made in this way, following the example of the Gero Cross. Of course, you can see a picture of the Gero Cross on my homepage or later these days on my social media. The importance of the Gero Cross can therefore not be underestimated in terms of art history. The fact that we have this gem completely preserved in Cologne Cathedral to this day is simply fantastic. Certainly, there have been earlier crucifixes, but these have just not survived being preserved until today. Of course, such an important work of art in Cologne has its own legend. The cross is attributed to the Archbishop Gero, the very man who brought Theophanu from Constantinople in 972. He is credited with having commissioned the creation of the crucifix. Let us listen to what Tietmov Merzebock himself wrote about it in his chronicle. Quote, the wooden crucifixes, which now stands in the middle of the church above his grave, he, he means Gero, had skillfully made. However, when he noticed a crack in his head, he healed it without his own intervention by the supreme artist so much more sacred help. He united a part of the body of the Lord, our only consolation in all troubles, with a part of the salvific cross, placed it in the crack, prostrated himself, and called on the name of the Lord pleadingly. When he rose again, he had obtained the cure by his humble praise. End quote. That was really hard to translate from Latin to German and then to English. I hope I got this right. This is a short, if beautiful, saga that I did not want to deny you. With the body of Christ is of course meant a host, a small piece of sourdough bread that is used in worship to this day in the Catholic Church as a symbol. Let's leave the cathedral and go back to the north-south main street of Cologne. Here would be nowadays the cathedral plateau and the beginning of the Ruhrstrasse. The latter is of course the Cardo Maximus we know. Here are numerous craft stores and merchants. The street divided the city into almost two extremes. West of today's Hohestrasse, the density of buildings decreased rapidly. Here, more agricultural estates were located within the old Rome city walls. Here, numerous monasteries and commons had also their farms and businesses. Agricultural and open areas within cities were nothing unusual throughout Europe. So much for the situation in the western part of the city. However, if you looked east from Hohestrasse towards the Rhine River, the development became narrow, very narrow. 
Here, multi-story houses were built in a very small space, and the streets, paths, and alleys were sometimes so narrow that one could hardly walk side by side. The closer one came to the banks of the Rhine, the denser the hustle and bustle became. The former harbor district had already been incorporated into the city since the middle of the previous century. Nevertheless, the former Eastern Roman city wall separates the harbor district called Martin's Quarter or Martin's Viertel in Cologne, German, from the rest of the city. So we squeeze through the so-called Marspforte, Mars Gate in English, a former Roman city gate to continue towards the harbor. The Roman wall and this city gate still stood at this place. However, they had already lost their military use due to the expansion of the city to the east, towards the Rhine. Many residents thus used parts of the wall to build their own houses directly on it. This saved building material and meant that one less house wall had to be built in some cases. Many parts of the Eastern Roman wall remained until modern times. Only with the advent of modern construction machinery, it was decided to demolish more and more of this ancient relic. The city gate Marspforte, or Mars Gate in English, which was supposedly located near a former Roman temple of Mars, I'm not sure if this temple really existed at this place or not, some books say it never existed, and some books say it might have been there, I have no idea. However, this Mars Gate was already demolished in the 16th century. And why? Why did they do such an effort before they had modern machinery to tear such a mighty stone structure down? Well, we come to that reason directly a few meters further. Suddenly, a large square opens up to us completely free of buildings. How could that be, when the rest of the neighborhood was so densely built up here in this harbor district? Well, a major political decision on urban development had probably been made here. But who would have had such power to make that decision? It was, of course, Archbishop Bruno, best known to us, who arranged this in his years as supreme ruler of the city. This thought was scientifically confirmed during the archaeological excavation of this square area between 1996 and 1998. With the dendrochronology, my favorite word, it was found out that in fact around the year 957, all buildings in this area were deliberately and in a very short time demolished and removed. Thus, the houses disappear together with the workshops which we had already mentioned in the first episode about early Frankish Cologne. The residents there were certainly not enthusiastic, but probably settled in the area around the square. This is how the large, contiguous market square area was created we are looking at right now, which was laid out with gravel. In the middle of the square stood a single building, the Archbishop's Mint. Since the middle of the 10th century, the archbishops of Cologne, as the supreme lords of the city, were allowed to mint their own coins, a right they had received permanently from the king emperor. Over the course of the next few years, more houses would be added to it to the west and east. Thus, the formerly continuous square area that we still can see in the year 1000 was divided into today's Heumarkt in the south and the 
Altermarkt, the old market, in the north. With this large area for the movement of goods, from now on the markets could take place unhindered and above all free of spatial confinement. This was an enormous economic boost for the city. See it as a medieval big business park that had opened in the middle of the city. This was an enormous economic boost for the city. The legal basis for freely deciding on the holding of markets had also been granted to the archbishops of Cologne by the emperor in perpetuity in the middle of the 10th century. At that time, many other places in the empire still needed the emperor's permission each time they wanted to hold a market. This was a clear locational advantage for Cologne that they could decide freely about it well. The archbishop could. Cologne's craftsmen and merchants were to gain enormous wealth as a result of that. However, this would also give rise to the urge for political participation among them, which could mean potential conflict with the archbishop as the absolute rule of the city. The market stalls at that time were not unlike those we still see today at weekly markets. As mobile stands, they were not firmly anchored in the ground. This also existed later in Cologne, but only, well, as I said, in later times. There was also no drainage system. When it rained, people relied on the water simply seeping away. Probably a wrong assumption, because already some decades later, small channels or gutters would be built on the surface of the square for this purpose. How I would love to get into a time machine and walk around the square. All the impressions, smells, sounds and generally the hustle and bustle, oh that would be wonderful. Here you could buy everything the medieval world had to offer. Food, fish, meat, everyday objects, handicrafts, jewelry and of course expensive luxury goods from faraway regions. To the east of the square area, the still modest church of Great St. Martin rises into the air. The Stift, you know, the monastery light version, originally found by Bruno, had now transformed into a stricter Benedictine monastery with monks around the turn of the millennium. The still modest church of Great St. Martin would still stand here for 150 years, but then the church building was to burn down completely in 1150 and then be replaced by today's Church of Great St. Martin, which dominates the old town panorama of Cologne to this day. In the many small narrow streets of the Martins Quarter, we find more smaller markets. Many are located in close proximity to the Rhine. Thus, the square, Fischmarkt, or in English, you might have guessed it, fish market, which still exists today, is one of the places where traders also carried out. From here we can also get a good view of the other bank of the Rhine. The fort of Deutz from late ancient Roman times, once founded by Emperor Constantine, still stands. Probably with a parish church in its center. In just three years, a large Benedictine abbey would be built here. But to go there directly, unfortunately, we cannot so easily. Because the Rhine Bridge from the late Roman period from the 4th century no longer exists. As we look out over the Rhine here, the bridge structure can no longer be seen. Unfortunately, it is not known exactly when it was demolished or when it completely decayed. 
even if the bridge had existed in some form until the year 1000, it would have been completely unusable. The entire bridge was once built out of wood, with the exception of the piers in the water made from stone. Thus, it is likely that shortly after the end of Roman rule in the Rhineland, the bridge fell into disrepair. To this day, it is claimed that it was Archbishop Bruno who had the last remains of the Rhine bridge demolished. In the 10th century, probably only the stone pillars were still sticking out of the water. Nowadays, everyone would have said, well, let's rebuild the bridge. But the technology to do so was simply no longer available, nor were the means to rebuild the bridge. On the contrary, there were many voices in the city to finally demolish the remains. The shipping industry had long complained to the city's ruler that the piers in the water were a danger to the ships. So it is said that Bruno had them demolished in order to use the stones later for the construction of St. Pantaleon. Whether this is true, however, is not entirely certain. Bruno and his successors in the Archbishopric of Cologne must not have been set at the time to tear down the remains of the bridge. They earned well anyway from exercising the ferry rights in their domains. For no one was allowed to cross the Rhine River nor to operate his own ferry service without the permission of the Archbishop of Cologne in office at the time. And they made a lot of money in the process. Of course the Archbishop did not drive the ferries across the Rhine himself. He granted ferrymen the right to do so, which they were also allowed to pass on within the families. This is how real dynasties of ferry families over the centuries came into being in Cologne. Arriving here on the banks of the Rhine, we see the bustle of merchant ships. Sea trade increased rapidly throughout Europe at this time around the turn of the millennium. But why actually? Well, it's I'm not sure how to say this correctly, but let's just simplify things again. Western Europe experienced a prolonged warm period during these years. The climate changed and became warmer on average, and historians and all other scientists are still debating if this was just a local event or when took it place exactly, but let's just cut it here. And two other things that there were no technological developments in the Middle Ages is mistaken. New methods in agriculture such as better plows and more diverse cultivation of crops ensured with the warmer climate that more food could be grown. As a result, fewer people simply starved to death in times of need than before and reached a higher age and sometimes did not die as infants or children. The resulting agricultural surpluses now obtained in many places made trade with other regions even more attractive than before. But traveling, especially with trade goods over land routes, was tedious. Thus, cities that were already located on waterways flourished. Cities like Paris, London, Constantinople, Cordoba in Spain and, of course, Cologne. What stands out? All of these mentioned cities were once started as Roman settlements, respectfully built and rebuilt Roman. Even after 500 years after the fall of the western part of the Roman Empire, the legacy of the Romans gave the people living there an enormous advantage over other localities and regions in Europe. Numerous ships anchor in Cologne, sailors fasten them to the shore with ropes, 
warehouses, workers unload the ship's cargoes, merchants inspect the ordered goods, sailors treat themselves to a drink in the numerous surrounding taverns and inns. It is a lively hustle and bustle here on the banks of the Rhine in Cologne. Cologne was and still is extremely conveniently located. It could continue to build on still existing Roman roads, which connected the city on the Rhine to the trade network of Europe. But then above all, there is the Rhine, the waterway that flows through half of Europe with all its tributaries. By ship on the Rhine, the Italian markets can be reached, but also the present Netherlands and then over the North Sea directly also England and London. From the North Sea, it was also possible to sail around Denmark to get to the Baltic Sea, a circumstance that still today makes the Rhine River the busiest and thus most important waterway in Europe. Let's go back to the Ruhrstraße. For this, of course, we go back through the Marspforte, the Mars Gate. If we now follow Ruhrstraße to the south, we come to the intersection with today's Schildergasse, or Decumanus Maximus, as it was called in Roman times. At this intersection of the two main streets of Rome, Cologne was once the Forum. Here in the year 1000, however, it no longer exists. The large spacious square has been built over in the meantime. Until the 8th century, the place was probably still used as a marketplace, despite numerous damages such as some earthquakes. By the year 1000, however, the last remnants of it were finally demolished. Even in today's cityscape, the Forum can no longer be found. But if you want to stand geographically exactly in the middle of the former Roman Forum, then just stand in front of the fountain with the high granite column on the Schildergasse. Let's follow this street to the west, today's Schildergasse. For the year 1000, I have not found so much for this area. It was probably rather like generally the western part of the city, rather more sparsely populated than in the rest of the city. Here we soon also come across the western Roman city wall, behind which was the still modest predecessor church of today's St. Apostles. Probably this area here in the west at the city wall was undeveloped. Here, later in 1076, there would be the first mention of a Neumarkt, or in English, New Market. Thus, the previous market near the Rhine became the Altermarkt, or in English, the Old Market, and that already more than 900 years ago. So, and that would bring me to the end of our city tour, for this episode anyway. Because, guys, I have so much going on in my private life, I was hardly gonna make this episode, so I thought better a shorter episode than no episode. We get to many other topics like how the people living here in the city and what about the how the, the clergy works here. We will get to all of that in all the next episodes, but not today. I have to step short this time. I'm very sorry. But you're not here for my private problems, so let's just talk about more general things that affected this city in the year 1000. Like, what did people think about the year 1000? Did they look forward to the year with particular eagerness as we 
perhaps did to the year 2000, with hope but also the fears of an approaching end of the world. And here I must disappoint you, I'm not depicting the image of the dark middle ages where the people are afraid and stupid, and as it is often claimed in the literature that people were afraid that in the year 1000 and 1000 years after Jesus, the end of all days would come. No, let me get that straight. People believed that the world would end one day, and maybe pretty soon. But I've already told you many times, the sense of time we have today, where the date is emblazoned on every newspaper, on information boards, along roads, on our cell phones, on our watches, that simply did not exist. For the people of Cologne in the year 1000, for example, it was not the year 1000, but the second year of the reign of Heribert, the then Archbishop of Cologne, who had held this office since the year 999. It was not until around the year 1500 that it became common practice to record the date as we do today with day, month, and the year. Or you're an American and you're stupid and put a month before the day. That makes no sense. Smallest to largest unit. Come on, guys, what's wrong with you? For many people, time in today's modern sense was not considered so relevant. Their lives were determined by an endless recurrence of the seasons. And hey, please, dear Americans, I know you are the majority of this, of the podcast listeners. It was just a joke. Please don't get mad. But I'm born on a day in May that is past beyond 12. So every time people looked at my, my German passport, <laughs> German passport, and asking me if I was already old enough to drink a beer in the US, they would always think I would have a fake idea because they said no one is born in the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th or 19th month. And I always had to explain to them, no, this is the day, not the month you are looking at right now. I'm born on this day in May and not on the fifth day of a 16th, 17th, 19th or 20th month. It's so annoying. Well. That's why I made this side note. That there was religious fervor at that time, however, cannot be denied. After all, the crusader idea would soon spread throughout Europe with partly fatal consequences. So much for time and the feeling of it. The Archbishop of Cologne is the supreme lord of the city in the year 1000. But that does not mean that we are in a fundamentalist theocracy here. The streets of the Martins Quarter at the harbor are busting with restaurants, gamblers, and of course also sex workers. Over 90% of the people at that time were still illiterate. Charles the Great had already tried desperately to learn to read and write his whole life like 200 years earlier, but had never really succeeded. Theophanu had probably been able to impress her father-in-law Otto I so much because Although she was only 12 years old, she was able to read and write in both Greek and Latin when she first met him. In general, Cologne around the year 1000 is a city on the upswing. All the developments and factors mentioned here favor the further development of the largest city in the empire. With its numerous church buildings, including relics, long-distance trade and the promotion of the economy through large markets, Cologne was on a good path. 
Here, despite a population decline caused by the end of Roman rule, a partly urban society based on the division of labor had remained, which, unlike the 90% of the people in Europe at that time, was not solely engaged in subsistence agriculture. Here, there were still, albeit long since out of repair, the Roman long-distance roads that had already provided the city of Cologne with a supra-regional trade network in antiquity. And of course, the Romans had made sure that a city like Cologne was conveniently located, in this case, on the Rhine River. In the next episode, we can gladly continue our walk through Cologne, but this time we will be accompanied by someone. And we can already see him walking towards the city from far away. Thereby, we see something peculiar. Without a large entourage, but in simple clothing and completely barefoot, a man entered the city on the evening before Christmas in the year 999. A man who, as archbishop, would give lasting impetus to the urban development of Cologne. An archbishop who not only kept an eye on the political fortunes as a prince of the empire, but who also cared for the poor and sick of the city with humanity and foresight like no other in his time. Together with his friend Otto III, son of our beloved Theophanu, resting here in St. Pantaleon Church, he aspired to nothing less than to create a renewed Christian empire. How this should look like, you will learn in the next episode. So let's get to the support your favorite podcast about the history of Cologne part. Subscribe and rate this podcast where possible so others can enjoy my voice and the history of this city. Like on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, for example. Please, it's just a little tap. So many of you guys are listening to it and I just have 30 reviews. Come on, please. It's just a little tap with your finger. And please, I notice only five-star reviews are available. I have no idea why. Follow me on social media like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or TikTok. There you can find me as History of Cologne Podcast. On my homepage, I always have pictures and background information for every single episode, including an interactive city map where you can see where places and buildings, etc. can be found in today's cityscape of Cologne. And in my link tree, in the show notes, you will find other ways how you can support this podcast, my one-man show, my hobby in the evening. It's 11 p.m. right now. And on the weekends, have a look. I would be very happy. Thanks for listening. And as always, auf Wiedersehen.